a people once on the outside, now invited in, presenting gifts to God and washing clean as best they could. But the old plan was only a hint of the good things in the new plan. These reminders of sin could never remove it. Only a perfect sacrifice by a perfect person to perfect some very imperfect people could wash away the last smudge of sin once and for all. The curtain drawn back so we could draw near, stepping into what was once off limits. Our words wafting heavenward and a place setting at the table for us, the unlikely guest. Enjoying the company of our host as his light makes the darkness disappear, the unknown seen, the confusion cleared, the empty overflow. A God so holy, utterly unknowable, again reaches out to us, first to the priests and now to the you and me's. The heaviness that once hung between, now tattered and torn, so the provider, protector, and perfecter of all things bright and beautiful can be seen face to face forevermore. Over the last 10 days, I had an opportunity to be in three countries of Asia, ministering to leaders from four countries. One came, one team came to a specific area. I was with our uh, worldwide missions pastor, Richard Payne, and the chair of our elder board, Pat Maserol. And I trained uh, about 140 believers who all head up these centers where they're training church planners. You provide, 20 cents of every dollar goes to worldwide missions. You provide the training materials that they use, three years of curriculum written at about sixth grade level for them. And uh, you pay none of their salaries, those church planners. And they will probably plant around 6,000 churches in the next two years. And about 60,000 people, conservatively speaking, are going to find Jesus because of that. Um, uh, so... I just want you to know it is a great return on investment, and you're part of God's greater movement around the world in some of the most difficult places you could ever visit. They pray for us. They ask that we would pray for them. I'd like to do that. Join me. God, I just want to lift up to you those men and women that were trained recently and all the leaders that they will train, the churches that will be planted, the folks that will come to faith in you. I pray that you bless them, protect them, help them to implement what they're learning one of the team's Lord is in a country that is about to face a tremendous wave of persecution. I pray that you'd watch over them, that you bless the Christians that nation to remain strong and to actually multiply. We ask this in Jesus' name and for your sake. Amen. Anybody been to the Tabernacle yet? I hope you go. Marsh and I went last night. It's a great experience. It'll bring to life this series, Encounter, How to Encounter God's presence. If you help volunteer, that would be really uh, well. I appreciate that very much. In 1981, there was a film that was released, hit the screen, and immediately became a sensation, a blockbuster, if you will. And uh, this uh, film uh, had quite a following, so they created more like it. You probably have seen it. How many of you have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? All right. All right. Some of you are like, when? When was 1981? I wasn't even around. Uh, but it was a fictional account 
of the Nazis trying to find the uh, ancient Ark of the Covenant because they believed that they could find it and open it. They'd be able to harness its power and defeat all enemies and conquer the world. And so the fate of the world rested in the arms of Indiana Jones. You're thinking to yourself, that's just a movie. I hope you're going to talk about more than just a movie. I am going to talk about more than just a movie. But that fictional account does raise a question. Is the Ark of the Covenant so powerful? Remember this scene from the movie? Watch this. Now, all the students want to go watch the movie, but uh, as a fictional account, but it does raise some interesting questions. First of all, where is the Ark of the Covenant these days? No one's sure. Some people think in Ethiopia. Some think it's buried in the Temple Mount. Others think it's just gone. Um, if the Ark were to be found and the lift were to be lifted, would it unleash this torrent of power? What is that power, and where did it go, and what does it mean? We're going to try to answer that question. In order to do that, you got to draw with Dale. I'm so happy to let you know, as I mentioned last time, researchers have proven that when you draw out something, you retain it more. So if you want deeper spiritual insight, you'll draw with Dale. So grab your chalk and your pens and your Crayolas and draw better than me, all right? And here's the first thing I want you to draw. I want you to draw the Garden of Eden. I want you to draw it like this, kind of like a horseshoe. There's a reason for that. You'll see why in a few minutes. And we know that in the garden, God dwelt, right? God was in the garden. He was more here than any place else in his creation. And that's because he wanted to be with his creation, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve. And in this environment, they lived in God's presence, so to speak. And there they lived in perfection. There they lived with all that they needed being provided, so they had provision. And there they lived with a sense of eternity. Um, their bodies were not dying. They just, they had this wonderful life with God. And then one day, the serpent came in representing the devil, and the devil uh, tempted the woman and the man by suggesting to them that they should disobey God. God had said, you can eat the fruit from any tree except this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat the fruit from that, you'll die. You'll die. Well, Satan said, if you eat the fruit from that, you'll live. You'll be just like God. You'll have your own garden, so to speak. So we know that even Adam reached out and took the fruit and ate it. And here we are today as a result of it. And we die and sin has filled our lives. When that happened, God sent them out of the garden and they went out of the east side. We'll talk about why that's important in a little bit. And God put a guard there. Genesis chapter 3, verse 24 talks about that. It says, after sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim, to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And for the first time, Adam and Eve felt absolutely vulnerable. 
for the first time, they had this thing in them called guilt, and they felt fear, and they felt shame, and they felt anxiety. And I know, you know, more than just adults feel that. I know our students feel that in school and with all the pressure in their lives. You guys feel that, don't you, sometimes? Afraid, worried, guilty, ashamed. Yeah, we feel those things in our hearts and we feel those in our lives. That's because we've lost, we've lost our perfection. Not only that, but uh, they also uh, had a sense that their bodies were deteriorating and they were feeling age and eventually their bodies would die and we all die. Not only that, but they had to start working the soil. It was hard to provide for themselves. There was, you know, there was uh, thistles and thorns, and the ground didn't always want to give a good yield. Life was hard. In other words, God said, do you want to be God? Go ahead and be God, and let's see what you can do. And they couldn't do very well as a result of that. And that's the story that we see in the garden. They were very hopeless. But the wonderful thing is that... Uh, God is always a God of hope, even in the most hopeless situations. And God spoke, and God spoke to a man in particular by the name of Moses, because God wanted to dwell with his people again. And so if you want to draw with me, now I want you to draw the tabernacle, because the way that God initially was going to dwell with his people was going to be by means of this thing called the tabernacle. So go ahead and draw your version of the tabernacle. If you kind of follow me, I'd appreciate that. But the gate is on the east side. And it must always be on the east side. Whenever you come to God in the Old Testament and then in the New, when you get to the temple, you move from east to west. And so we know that the first thing you encounter is a brazen altar. We talked about that, the labor for washing. Then you have this large tent of the meeting, the, the real core of the tabernacle. There's the table of showbread. There is the candelabra. There is the altar of incense. There's this veil. When you get past the veil, there is this thing known as the Ark of the Covenant. And it is here that God hovers and God's presence is with his people because they are prescribed by God specifically, encamped by various tribes all around it. The photo you see on the screen behind me shows you a picture of what it would have looked like if you had been there in those days and had seen this picture come to life. Now let's look at a passage of scripture that describes how this all came about. It's found over in Exodus chapter uh, 25, if you want to turn there with me. And I want to start reading at about verse 16. All right, now we're, we're drawing not just a physical picture here, but you're going to see at the end, we're drawing a very powerful spiritual picture. So it's important we get some of these details. So in Exodus chapter 25, verse 10, it says... Had the people make an ark of acacia wood, a sacred chest, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high, overlay it inside and outside with pure gold, and run a molding of gold all around it, cast four gold rings and attach them to its four feet, two rings on each side, make poles from acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings the sides of the ark to carry it. These carrying poles must stay inside the rings, never remove them. When the ark is finished, place inside it the stone tablets inscribed the terms of the covenant, which I will give to you. Then make the arks cover the place of atonement from pure gold. It must be 45 inches long, 27 inches wide. Then make two cherubim from hammered gold and place them on the two ends of the atonement cover. Mold the cherubim on, one, uh, mold the cherubim on each end of the atonement cover, making it all one piece of gold. The cherubim will face each other and look down on the atonement cover with their wings spread over it. They will protect it. 
place inside the ark the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant which I will give to you. Then put the atonement cover on top of the ark. I'll meet with you there and talk to you from above the atonement cover between the gold cherubim and hover over the ark of the covenant. From there, I will give you my commands for the people of Israel. All right, so let's draw the ark of the covenant now. So uh, if you're drawing with me, just draw your version of this, this box, all right? And what this box is going to come to represent for Israel is really God's throne, all right? So when you think about the cover of the box, the cover of the box is a picture of God's throne. So you can color that in if you want. And on top of it, you'll see if you go through the tabernacle experience where these cherubim, all right, these creatures, supernatural creatures that guard what is known as the mercy seat. And this becomes God's throne room. Exodus chapter 40 gives us a written picture of what it was like for God to sit on his throne in the midst of his people. I want you to turn there because I think it's very powerful and it speaks a lot to how God dwells today. Exodus chapter 40 and verse 34 says, then the cloud covered the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could no longer enter the tabernacle because the cloud that settled down over it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, whenever the cloud uh, lifted from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out on a journey following it. But the cloud did not rise. They remained where they were until it lifted. The cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle during the day, and at night fire glowed inside the clouds so the whole family of Israel could see it. This continued throughout their journeys. Can you imagine the scene with me? Can you imagine during the day, remember that photo we had up there earlier? You come out of your tent, and there's God's presence, symbolized by that cloud that's just hovering over the Ark of the Covenant. God is in the house. How would that make you feel? And every night as you get ready to go to bed, you look out of the tent one more time, and there you see the pillar of cloud, and inside the pillar of cloud is this fire, red hot fire. And you go to bed that night knowing that God is watching over us, God is with us. I can't imagine anything more grand than to have that sense of God's presence. And yet, despite that, God's people still rebel against him. Why? Because there's this thing in our lives that says, I want to be my own God. And imagine that Paul tells us in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit now indwells us. God hovers now, not just over us, but in us. And we walk around every day. These kids go to school every day. You and I go to work every day as believers, if we're a follower. And we have the very presence of God living in us. And yet we're more conscious often of the world around us and the presence of God in us. And if you're not conscious of the presence of God in you, you can't really change the world around you. Because you need that power. We're not conscious of it because, again, we struggle with this sense of wanting to be God of our own lives. We sense something is missing. We sense that, that we need a power. We need what this box represents, so to speak. So there are three items that were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And I want us to look at them because they symbolize what we need. First of all, Moses was told to put within the ark what we think of as the Ten Commandments. You can, you know, create your own stone tablets and put it in the ark you have drawn. Exodus chapter 25, we read it already, verse 16. When the ark is finished, place inside it the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant which I will give to you. The law, the law. 
The law for the people then, and it would be if something had not changed for us as well, was a real pain. Because the law reminded everybody of their imperfections. Remember, in the garden, they had perfection. They lost that perfection. And the law tells us we're imperfect. The law is what tells us we're guilty. That we're condemned and we deserve to be judged. Because the only way I can stand before God, apart from Christ, is I would have to keep the law perfectly and none of us can. Oh, that there was a way to open the lid on the box and get that law into my heart so that I was perfect before God. The second thing that was placed in it was a jar, if you want to draw that out. And in that jar, there was manna that was placed. Exodus chapter 16 talks about that. If you want to turn back and look at that. Exodus chapter 16 and verse 33. Moses said to Aaron, get a jar and fill it with two quarts of manna. Then put it in a sacred place before the Lord to preserve it for all future generations. Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. He eventually placed it in the Ark of the Covenant in front of the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. So the people of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they arrived at the land where they would settle. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So the manna reminds them how God has sustained their lives. If we go back to the garden, God said you can eat the fruit from any tree that you want. God sustained their lives. All right, so now God is sustaining me in the wilderness with physical food, but how do I become sustained spiritually? Because man is more than just his belly. All right, we need more in our lives. We need, we need, this, we need this sense of being sustained. These are our souls, the emptiness that we feel in our souls. And then there is this rod, this rod of Aaron, and it's a budding rod, almond blossoms. And if you want to understand that, you're going to have to read on your own later on, Numbers chapter 17. Because after the tabernacle was built, there was this big argument. Why is it that Aaron and his family get to be the priests, and my family, our tribe, we don't get to be that? So God said, tell all the tribal leaders to bring a rod, a stick, a dead, plain old stick. And so each head of the tribe brought the sticks, 12 all together, and they had their names written on them. And God said to Moses, take it and place it before me in the Holy of Holies and come back the next day. And the one that blossoms, the one that was dead and comes back to life again, that is who I have chosen. So he collects all 12, sticks them in there, goes back the next day, and sure enough, it is Aaron's rod that is budding. And so Aaron's rod is put in the box, so to speak. It is a reminder that God has the power to take something dead and make it alive. God can choose to do as he wishes, when he wishes, how he wishes, in conformity with his character. And all these things in the box, in a sense, are things that we all need to get back to a garden experience with God. We need perfection. We need him to sustain us. And we also need this sense of eternal life. To live on, so to speak. And nobody can get close enough to the box to take the lid off the box to take the power of what these symbols mean and appropriate it. The person who gets the closest is known as the high priest. And he can only go once a year on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. And when he goes, he has to go so very carefully and he can't open the lid up. Read about it in Leviticus chapter 16. It says that he has to, first of all, take a young bull and he has to slay it. He has to take the blood from the bull. And again, 
And I want you to keep an eye on this. We'll talk about it soon. He moves from the east to the west into the Holy of Holies. And there he sprinkles seven times the blood of the bull on top of the mercy seat so that God will exercise mercy over his life. Then there are two goats that are brought to him. There's more you can read about it, but the two goats are brought to him. He sacrifices one of the goats. He kills it and he takes his blood. He goes east to west. He sprinkles it on the east side of the Ark of the Covenant to make atonement for the sins of the nation. Then he takes the goat that's still alive and he rests his hands on it and he confesses the sins of the nation over the goat. It's taken out of the east side of the tabernacle. The only way to go out has led off into the wilderness. It's this picture that for another year, the sins of the people have been removed. But every year there has to be Yom Kippur. Every year there has to be a day of atonement because we are never fully cleansed. We are never fully free. We are under the conviction, the condemnation of the law. And so there's always bloody sacrifices that are taking place in the tabernacle and in the temple. What we need is a perfect high priest. What we need is a perfect sacrifice. One that will end all the sacrifices. What we need is perfection in our lives. Wouldn't you love to be perfect? Some of you may think you are. But really, we you students like to be perfect, wouldn't you just love to be a perfect person? Well, there's a perfect high priest that came in to take care of things for you and me. Not someone from the lineage of Aaron, but someone sent from God, from heaven. You know who he is, Jesus Christ. And I want to read to you a series of scriptures on this. You can look them up later. The first one is found in Hebrews chapter 2. Just listen to this beautiful description. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to fear of dying. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. I don't know if you students ever think about this, but you know, usually when we think about Jesus, we think of him as an adult. You know, he, he started out as an infant and he went to element, you know, he went elementary age, junior high, high school. So he's been where you've been. It's kind of nice to know that he understands what, what you go through, what you feel, and what you experience in some ways. We go back to passage of scripture, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. It says, he is the kind of high priest we need because he is holy and blameless, unstained by sin. He has been set apart from sinners and has been given the highest rank of honor in heaven. Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as a sacrifice to people's sins. The law appointed high priests who were limited by human weakness. But after the law was given, God appointed his son as an oath, with an oath. And his son has been made the perfect high priest forever. Just one more passage. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered the greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands, is not part of this created world. 
With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. So let's go back to Yom Kippur, but this time let's not think about a human high priest. Let's think about Jesus. Jesus moves from east to west, so to speak. He comes in as a, not a sinner, but he comes in with our sins placed on him, so to speak. He doesn't die, uh, he's not sacrificed on a brazen altar, but he's sacrificed on a cross. He doesn't have to wash away his own sins, but our sins get washed away. He makes his way into the presence of God. He doesn't sprinkle the blood of bulls or goats, but he sprinkles on the mercy seat his own blood, symbolically speaking. Remember, before the mercy seat is a mercy seat, it's a judgment seat. And unless blood is sprinkled on it, judgment is meted out. Christ sprinkles his blood once and for all. And from that moment on, the box is open, so to speak, and everything we need is applied to our lives. From that moment on, we are perfected in Christ Jesus. And the power of this box, so to speak, What's in it changes our lives. Let me show you what I mean. Let's start, first of all, with the law. The law reminds us how sinful we are, but Jesus does something to show us a different aspect. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, Don't, mis don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses, the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Galatians 3, 24. Let me put it another way, Paul said. The law was our guardian until Christ came and protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. So here's the deal. Jesus says, I've come not to get rid of the law, but to complete the law. I am the perfect law keeper. And I am going to keep the law on behalf of everyone. And my perfection through my sacrifice will be imputed or placed into everyone. So that now I have a new past, not my old past. Now I live and stand before God as though I never sinned in my life. I stand before him as one who is absolutely innocent. I go back to the garden. They were naked and unashamed. They had no self-consciousness. They had no guilt. They had no sense of fear in their lives. I had that again because God has imputed it into me. I have his spirit living in me and who Christ is is given to me and that becomes my new identity. Isn't that wild? So I have a choice every day. I can live out of my old identity or I can live out of my new identity. I should be growing in perfection. I won't be perfect till I get to heaven, but I should be growing that way. Now as soon as I say that, Paul knew what you'd be thinking and what I'd be thinking. So Romans 6, he says, since grace abounds, since Christ did all of that for us and we now live in his perfection, does that mean we can sin unlimitedly? He says in the Greek. <laughs> he uses some really strong language in Romans 6. May it never be, he says. He says, God just saves by grace so we can go on sinning. But he says, when we do, all we have to do is confess that we got mud on that perfect nature. And he forgives us. But the reality is you're perfect. If you kicked the cat and cussed this morning, if last night you said or did something that wasn't very right, wasn't very Christian, and went against God's word, you didn't stop being God's child. You didn't suddenly become to God imperfect. He sees you constantly as perfect because it's all about Jesus. Amen? But I got a choice to make every day. Will I live out of that or will I live out of my own nature? 
And when I live out of what Christ has done for me, that's, that's when I start to spiritually grow. When I access that presence, when I, when I believe that God is more than just that God out there, but he actually lives in here, which takes us to the jar of manna. Jesus says something interesting over in uh, John chapter 6, verse 32. So I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. Now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. In the garden, God said, take and eat the fruit from any of the trees except that one tree. The tree of knowledge, good and evil. But I'll provide for you everything else you need. God says again to us, I provided everything you need to sustain you, spiritually speaking. It's my son. It's my son. That's all you need to sustain your life. And it's one of the hardest things for American Christians to believe. Because the more materialistic our society is, we get convinced in our minds that there are other things that can ultimately satisfy and sustain us. Money can, success can, sex can, the right grades can, people's approval can, making an A, getting on the team. And so we bow down to all these idols looking for something to sustain us. And it doesn't sustain us. Do you know why? Because it's not manna. You know what manna means in the Hebrew? In Hebrew it means what is it? Can you imagine the first time the Hebrew walked out of his tent? God provided the food in the morning. It was like coriander seed and had a sweet taste to it. And he looked at his wife and he said, what is it? And she said, I don't know, what is it? And he said, I know, what is it? Manna means what is it? In other words, there was nothing on earth they could compare it to. It was literally heavenly food. So there's nothing on earth that you could say, it tastes like X. Because it was provided by God. Jesus is God's provision for us. There's no one else like him. No one else comes near to him. You, we cannot create a savior out of this world that's like him. God has to bring him to us so that in wonder like children we go, what is it? I've never tasted anything like it. I've never seen anything like it. This is so amazing. What is it? And God says, it's my son. And ultimately he'll sustain your life. Every time I go overseas, I get reminded again of how true and powerful this is because I sit and stand and teach for hours and talk to these men and women. And a lot of them, by the way, are young adults, which is very exciting what God's doing overseas. And they wear the same pair of clothes every day. And they live in shacks. They have no sense of retirement. They have no sense of financial well-being. And yet to watch them pray and to watch them worship even though, as they say, they've been rejected by the family, there's a joy in their life that's contagious. It's because they've decided and realized that Jesus is all they need. He's enough to sustain their lives. Do we believe that? Do you students believe that? Do you guys believe that Jesus is enough to sustain your life? What would happen if your video console was taken? <gasps> right? Is Jesus enough to sustain our lives? Then there's this, there's this uh, rod, right, that buds. Jesus says something very profound in John chapter 11. He was talking to Martha, whose brother had died, Lazarus. And Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? I was riding home on the plane, and it was a long series of flights because of some airspace issues over in that country, or over in Asia. And so I'm on this long flight, and I can't, I, can't, uh, I can't sleep, and I'm laying there, and I suddenly had this image of my mom come to my mind. My mom passed away, as you know, last November, and I've never been able to really grieve her loss because she died, and then our best friend died, and then there was Thanksgiving and Christmas, and I just haven't been able to really settle in, and for some reason, I got this picture in my mind. And the picture that came to my mind is the last time I saw my mom alive. I had to put her in hospice, and and she was very agitated and very upset, and she wanted out of the bed. And I had to put my hand on her shoulder. I had to gently push her back into the bed and say, Mom, you can't go home right now. And that's the last thing I remember of my mom. And that just came into my mind like a picture show, like a movie screen. And it made me feel so sad. I really started to start just grieve. And as I, was po- as I was thinking about that and feeling very emotional and not very happy about it, God reminded me that my mom is with him in the garden called paradise. And she's very much alive and conscious of his presence. And he has perfected her now. And he's providing for her now. And she's going to live forever. And someday when he returns, he says in his word, he's going to give her a brand new body. And I'm reminded that everybody here is going to die. I'm going to die too. Some of us will die well. Some of us, it may be difficult and excruciating and painful, but it'll be worth it because on the other side, we will see his face. And on the other side, we will be finally perfected. We'll fully experience that perfection. We'll be fully provided for, and someday we'll have a brand new body. That's why Christ is enough. That's why Christ is enough. That's why our faith is so Christocentric. Without Christ, there is nothing else. He is God's sacrifice. He is the one that reconciles. He's the one that takes the lid off the box, so to speak, and makes us whole again. And the picture I want you to see is the east to west continuum. You know, north and south start and stop. North pole, south pole, south pole to north pole. But when you go east to west, it never ends. Never ends. So as the psalmist says, he throws our sins, our transgressions, as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers them no more. Isn't that awesome? That's how God feels about you and me, what he's done for us. And he says, hang on, I'm coming soon, or I'll take you home soon. In essence, what we see in the box really is a picture of what, experienced in, what was experienced in the garden. God started in the garden. Read the book of Revelation carefully. He'll end in the garden. And we will be with him forever. And it's not a fairy tale. It's our reality. This world is the fairy tale. Do you believe it? This is our hope. It's our hope. Amen? All right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you for Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done for us. Father, in a moment, we're going to raise our voices to you once again, and we're going to worship you with those beautiful words of your holiness. This time, Lord, I pray that we'll be so much more sincere. It'll be so much more worshipful as we think about who you are and what you've done for us. We celebrate King Jesus and the victory that we have in him. 
And what we've experienced, Lord, we can share with others. So, Lord, come and hover over us. Please come and make your presence known to us now. Would you stand with me? Would you worship God with your hearts?